This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Label Clothing Company. Uh, they have been a huge supporter of mine for many years now. And anytime you see me wearing a dress shirt or a suit, it is from them. Uh, everything is custom made. And anyone who knows me knows I hate wearing suits and I hate wearing dress shirts. I not only look dapper, but the clothes feel great and uh, wear really well. So anyone in the need of a custom suit, definitely hit them up. You can find them online at label.co. What's up? Anthony Vasquez here with Dr. Janet Farrell-Leontu, and today we are bringing you part three, what is the purpose of our work? Super excited to share this hour of content with you. Janet and I dig deep, and we really get into the discussion of what is the purpose and the meaning of our work. So without further ado, here's Janet, and super excited to share this with you. Thank you. So we are back today with my guest, Dr. Janet Farrell-Leontu, and we're going to be talking about, I know, a subject that you feel dearly about. Um, so we've spoken about the process, about resistance, and now we're going to get into purpose, which I think ties everything back in. Because without a purpose, getting through the process and overcoming the resistance would, in my opinion, be impossible. Uh, I think the faster we find our purpose and the deeper that purpose becomes, the easier the first two the first two things become. So if we know our purpose and our purpose is fundamentally deep within us and it's something we feel so passionate about, going through the process and overcoming the resistance become that much easier. Whereas when we do work without a process, without a purpose, it becomes a job and it's not really our work. And I know that's something that you feel feel deeply about, so I definitely want to hear. Well, here's, here's the idea of the counterintuitive idea again, is that we don't find our purpose or create our purpose by driving toward it, right? So that it's something that emerges when we are in the business of living our lives, right? And so that I think what we do to kids is we make them really um, goal-driven and product-driven and end result oriented. And I think all of that makes us not create our purpose. So I think, again, the counterintuitiveness and also the paradoxes, what we're, how we're training people is not producing the outcome that I think we want. So like one of the, one of the quotes, and I'll talk about it, I think when we get to S in my talk, is the way in which Frankel talks about success, right? And he says, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you miss it. For success, like happiness, must, ens must ensue. So he says, when we pursue certain things, and I think, I think he's correct, and I, I teach this philosophy, when we chase after something, we don't get it. And when we're busy living our lives, and it comes to us, that's the way that it's meant to be, right? So and it, it's not, as my students sometimes think, you, you sit back and do nothing. You engage, you follow your interests, you pursue where you think you need to go, you just follow the road signs along the way, right? Um, and if you do that, you'll get someplace. If you just pursuing what you're interested in, what you like, what gives you energy, what feeds you. I think all of those things are really important in terms of pursuing, you know, following something. Um, I, I also think the idea of, you know, our, our purpose, if we 
go back to Frankel again. He says our purpose is love. So that, I think, is a really interesting perspective. And our purpose is, and lots of writers and lots of thinkers have said this, our purpose is not to be happy. Our purpose is to evolve, learn, have experiences, create meaning. That seems to be what our purpose is. So I was reading something recently, and I think it said in America currently, 70% of people are currently unhappy in their work, in their job. Another 20% are mildly unhappy or indifferent, and only 10% actually derive pleasure from the work that they do. It's kind of astounding when you think about it. So basically you're saying 90% of Americans are unhappy with what they do 60 hours a week, which equivalent is to a third of your waking hours minus sleep that leaves you very little time to be actually happy in life, Um, especially when you consider, at least for me, in my work, you know, I spend so much time with the people I work with right. to be unhappy at work is, is hard. And so I think for something I've, I've been questioning is what's my life's purpose or my life's work. And if I look at it and say, well, it's just taking pictures at weddings. Well, first of all, I use the word just, which minimizes, you know, what I do, but I think that's not enough for me. So for me, my life's work per se right now and the way I've looked at it and the way I've approached, especially this year, is to give as much of myself to my team and see my team thrive and deriving pleasure from seeing people who work within our company become successful in their own right. And when I look at my work that way, it gives me a lot more energy than mm-hmm. saying I just take pictures. Because now my, my, my purpose is actually not just creating a gorgeous image mm-hmm. of a multi-million dollar wedding in New York City or you know mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, right? Because um, there can be some shallowness to that in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, you know, being able to do something that's so privileged, you lose track of what really is important in life. Um, but if I look at it and say, that's part of what I do, but my deepest meaning comes from seeing the joy and success that my company can bring to the people within it, that really motivates me and provides me with a really sense of what I would consider now when we talk about that is that success, is seeing people within the team become indoctrinated, pick up and, and, and grow as people, see them become better in whatever skill they have. See, and I think within the context of what we've talked about is there's a parallel between us, right? Is that the, the work is building people. That's the work, which another word for that is love, right? It's, it's seeing somebody else thrive and that you have made some kind of contribution towards that capacity to thrive. I would say the same thing is true of of teaching, right? You're giving the student something that you hope will inform them and feed them and be something that they can draw draw upon throughout their lifetime. And you're doing the same kind of thing is in that context, that is all of our purpose of what Frankl is saying. If our highest purpose is love, then our, our purpose collectively is how do we have the people who surround us, in this case, in the context by which we make a living, how do they thrive? I, and I think, I don't know, you tell me because you're more in this literature than I am, but isn't, isn't that the model for thriving companies right now? Is where people feel that sense of like they're building themselves, right? Is I, mean, it- I think, yeah, and I, I, think so. I, I think it's an interesting statement you make because I think some companies take it too far where it becomes you know too 
too much of that and not enough work may be getting done or it's too it's too driven whereas we've tried, I've tried to have like the balanced approach here where it's it's yes we want people to thrive we want them to become individuals but we also don't want them to lose track of the the greater part of the team the greater part of the company and, and you'd have to yeah. yeah but i mean the i think when you say it becomes too much i think you're speaking about companies where there's more entertainment. There's more. It, it, yeah. Well, you right? know, I, I know companies that where it's ping pong for, you know, you know, but that's not what we're talking yeah, about. No, it becomes too much in that sense where it's, yes. Yeah. That, that's like, that's juvenile. It becomes a, a frat, a frat or sorority house. I don't think that builds anybody. Yeah, yeah. See, but I don't think, I don't think, like, yeah, like I'm going to tell Google that they should do it differently. Right. See, but I would argue the reason they do it is a little bit more selfish. Yeah. Because it, 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 it in a way, it keeps people at work longer. It also keeps you interacting only with people at work. It mm -hmm. keeps you on their quote unquote campus so that you have no need to leave. So while yes, it says, oh, we're doing this for employees. I think a lot of it is in essence, we've, we found that this works really good for the company because it, it keeps people there much longer than they need to be. Or mm -hmm. And in some ways probably want to be. Mm -hmm. So bring your dog so you don't have to leave to go home or worry about your dog. But now your dog's on the campus in a dog daycare your mind is at work and your body is at work. And, and I think that's that's part of the reason that, in my opinion, that some of the companies do that. Yeah. See, but I think it could also happen even without all of those bells and whistles because, like, I remember my first corporate job out of school and it was um, the company that I wrote my master's thesis about on organizational culture is that there was a mentality and it was a very... It, the thesis ended up being about the construction of sexism in the workplace through people's talk. And so that it was very divided. All of the low-level positions were filled by young women. And all the sales and management were primarily felt, filled by, by men. But the young women spoke. See, they did it in, in terms of themselves. They kept themselves there because they said, we're family. And so that language, we're family here, and I mean, you've, you've spoken about that too, is I think you could have an idea of family with, in terms of a closeness, but in this context, with the way in which they spoke about family, they didn't want to leave. And the thing is, for them, you were never going to gain any status by staying there because- You'll always be the child in that well, family. Yeah, you, yeah, you'll always you'll be the child be and you'll never be promoted from within so that- you have to allow, if you're family though, you have to allow for the youngsters to move. Mm -hmm. Which is why I prefer this. I mean, I, I think we have a family culture, but I like the sports analogy better because at least in the sports analogy, you have an owner of a team, coach of a team, maybe you have a captain of the team. And when you break that down, it's the CEO, the vice president, captain of the team might be the general manager. And then you have the team players in there that all facilitate that. And the good thing about a team versus a family is you can't fire family members. Yeah. And when you do that, it, it goes both yeah, ways. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's a betrayal. It's a betrayal. Yeah. Whereas in a, in a, in in a sports team, arena, in a team, you're if, if you're, you're cut. So, you know, when I look at. You're impressed with that. I know that language. <laughs> kind of like that. You know, but for us, you know, we've, we, we've instituted this culture. We've set forth it. And, and my, my concept behind it is number one, I want people to grow. I want them to be happy here. I, I, I truly want to add value to their lives. And that's the perspective I approach it. At the same time, I want to come to an office where we work very closely, which you've seen how close. We're yeah, proximity. Working. Yeah, there's eight of us right on top of each other. And I've seen one bad apple spoils the bunch, which we just spoke about. 
So for us, having people come in and join the culture that we've said for, you're either in the culture or you're not in the culture, right? So you either fit into the purpose of my company. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it goes a little deeper than that for me. And I don't know how this has worked out. We only have two people now in the office where their country of origin was the United States. And to me, that's beautiful. So we truly are a melting pot. Pot. We cover Europe and and, and South America, um, and bringing those different cultures together, I think, is also something to be celebrated. Um, whereas in a lot of companies, I think they may not hire because of people's country of origin. That's mm-hmm. a very easy way out because you know that someone may have an accent or English wasn't their first language. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't make them less intelligent. It just means English wasn't their first language. Right. Um, so for me, the purpose is now to also provide opportunity to people who may not have had those opportunities in other companies because of their country of origin or because of their language of birth, um, which mean nothing to me. I look at them as humans. Can you produce? Can you can you be part of a team? Can you do your work with excellence? Well, that's the three most important things to me. And are you a good person, of course? Um, where you were born and what language you spoke first means absolutely zero. Whereas I do feel in a lot of companies, people aren't given that second pass because they may have a slight accent or it's obvious they weren't born in this country. Well, it has to do with people hire people who are, are perceived to be like them, right? So it depends on what you identify as like you. Mm-hmm. Are you looking for qualities in a person to be like you? Or are you looking, and this is, I think, a fundamental difference and a, and a choice. People who went to the same school that you did, speak the same language you speak, are the same color as you, practice the same religion of you. Or are you building a business based on people who have a shared approach to work, a similar work ethic, uh, a standard about how to treat other people? I think those are very, very different approaches as to, and you could see, right, that people make different choices. People also make those choices based on the choice of their friends. Well, and I think one thing we can say now here, at least for me, is that I do truly feel that everyone who works within my organization is governed by the same moral compass, which is to always be there for the team and to always be there for the betterment of everyone else in the office. And we didn't always have that here, right? So people, some people were, some people weren't. Whereas now, um, just by simply letting go of a few people, right, and now replacing them, which will be people who fit within that company culture. Um, but I think the other important thing, too, is in, in, in a small business setting is for at least my own personal growth has been hiring people who have strengths that I'm very weak in. Yeah, that's good. And so for me, Sylvia, for example, who you've now gotten to meet through doing this, balances out my weaknesses very well. So she's sternly organized and and scheduled, right? So for me- And so is Gabe. And so is Gabe, right? And I'm fly by the the seat of your pants, we'll make it work. Whereas they're like, hey, no, we need, you know, we need the schedule. So that balances out my idea. So I come up with the idea and then Sylvia's like, that's great idea. I really appreciate your idea. Now we need to put your idea into a structure, right? So she puts it into a structure and then that makes the idea possible, right? Instead of it just being a scattered, scattered thought. So for one thing, for me within growth and, and, and finding that purpose is fulfilling people and putting them in the position that complement each other, right? So not just hiring like, because hiring like would be disastrous. We'd have eight people oh, like yeah. me, yeah. you know, and, and that's no good. That wouldn't be it good. It wouldn't be good. No. Um, I have my strengths, but I need people who balance those strengths out, which gets into another conversation, I think, too, which in today we're talking about like this well-rounded approach to people, not just uh, in a business setting, but in life. And people always say to me, 
you really need to work on your weaknesses, right? Whereas I say, no, double down on your strengths, hire where you're weak. Because no matter how hard I try to correct my weaknesses, I will never be as strong as those as I am in my strengths, in, in, in my opinion. So in a workplace, I know what I'm really good at. I also know what I'm really not good at. And acknowledging my weaknesses and, and hiring to fulfill those weaknesses makes it easier to strive towards my purpose. And then how does that philosophy impact your personal life? Uh, that's a good question. You know, and I think um, maybe not as well in my personal life as in my business life. Yeah, it's right? easier. It's, easy. it's, a lot e it's a lot easier. It's a lot more black and white yeah. in, in a business setting than it is in an intimate setting. Um, and I think, you know, obviously weaknesses within a relationship probably not as good. Um, whereas in the business setting, yeah. it, it's a lot easier to say, hey, I really suck at this. I'm just going to hire. Whereas in a relationship, I can't be like, hey, I'm really not a good listener. I'm going to hire somebody to listen to you for me. And then they'll relay to me what you were trying to say. That might not necessarily work. Whereas in a business setting, hiring someone like Sylvia, who compliments my weakness, works out really well. The other thing I wanted to say about the um, purpose is that it's an ongoing process. Right. So that your purpose is always evolving and always changing so that maybe for you in the interpersonal relationship, it's it's more important for you not to double down on your strengths, but to develop your weaknesses. Right. So that you do reach your potential in that relationship. And and Frankel says that, you know, love is seeing what lies in the potential of the other. So in seeking out somebody to be in relationship with is somebody who could see that you have this potential within you, but it's not yet actualized. And maybe through that other person, you can become this fantastic version of yourself. And that might be where the, the idea of your purpose and your potential might be more brought to the fore. Because I think the way you described it with regard to the business is that Yes, it allows you to accomplish your purpose, but it also conversely allows you not to see and not to tap into something because it's kind of outsourced for you and it works and it's effective and I could see it runs, right? But, um, it doesn't, it doesn't ask anything of you to do because you can just sort of patch it up and sort of make it work. Whereas in the other place, you, you can't do that. And so I was talking, I was thinking about the whole idea of the evolution of process, because I think this, you know, this language of, of self-actualization and, and Frankel speaks about it in the book also. And he off, offers this perspective is that we're never done. We're always evolving towards something. We always, hopefully, right? It is a very hopeful philosophy is that we're always moving toward purpose, right? And, and our purpose is always shifting. Our purpose doesn't stay the same. Like, you know, what was your purpose when you were 19 years old in college? And what's your purpose now? It's, it changes and it changes as we grow and we mature. Um, you, you, you had some inclination to get into photography. Do you remember what that inclination was? As to why? It was really simple. When I was 16, I needed a job, and my friend's mother worked at a photography studio. 
I think the inclination to stay with it was I actually enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed the process of taking pictures and the work itself. So, but the initial job, the initial was entry was, just, was a just, job. just was just a job. Yeah, but that happens sometimes, yes. right? And you just get, where the, the world brought me. Yeah, and then and then you know it 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 worked out that you yes. liked it. Fast forward twenty two years, that purpose has evolved greatly as well, though. And so that do you still feel that there is a creative aspect that's satisfying in the work that you do now? There is, there is. And I think, you know, I think keeping the balance of trying to still stay creative while not burning out, while managing a company, there's different challenges now. Whereas before, you know, I think it's really simple. When you're young, you have nothing to lose, right? You have nothing, you you know, you're you're starting out. So it's a lot, I actually think, um, I actually Mm -hmm. miss those days because starting out, you have, you know, there's no employees, there's no team, there's no insurance, all the things that come with running an organization. So there's no responsibility to the people who work for you who now rely on you to pay their bills and feed their family. So yeah, um, that aspect of it shifts greatly as a business matures. Um, so I, the in, initial stages, those are the easiest, even though you think they're the hardest. Now, looking back on them, you go, man, that was nothing because now as as an adult, the responsibility shifts. So, yeah, there there is a. Uh, there is still a, a joy out of creating really cool work. Um, the deeper joy for me, though, is that purpose of helping others now. You know, and that's, I think, just as you mature and as I've grown as a person, I get much more joy out of seeing other people become successful than I do out of my own personal successes now. Um, and that that deeper purpose allows me to continue to still want to take pictures because now that is a, mm-hmm. a venue, a vessel Right. The, the, mm-hmm. the creativity I have is a vessel to help others mm-hmm. right? and see other people succeed. Um, whereas if I go just taking pictures, that that wasn't enough for me. But using my ability to take pictures and do that very well allows me now to give back to a, a good number of people who I truly love. Um, and that purpose is really what my now my driving force is 20 years in. And I think uh, mm-hmm. what you just mentioned is really important is recreating purpose because your purpose can't just stay static for 30 years. There's no evolution to that. And if you do, I think that leads to really burnout, you know? So for me, something to rejuvenate me and keep me fresh and keep me engaged and keep me wanting to do what I do is, it, is, is, is evolving that purpose and finding a deeper purpose along the way. And I think in, in, uh, I think, uh, Franco's words are really wise on this and, I think it takes a long time for students to wrap their heads around what he's saying. They don't really get it at first. And he says success is the byproduct. It's not the product. It's the byproduct for pursuing what it is that you feel you are meant to pursue at this point in your life. And, and I think, you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting thing, especially given 2000, the, the, the culture of 2019, right? So for some people, success is how many Instagram followers they're able to achieve. Mm-hmm. The interesting question is, let's say somebody says, I want 100,000 followers on Instagram. When you reach that 100,000, is there any sense, like has life changed? Do you feel better about yourself? Do you feel you have a deeper meaning? I almost bet 99.9% of the time the answer is probably no. Um, so like what you just said is without having a purpose mm-hmm. and, you know, and having that deeper purpose and the evolution of the purpose, you can't view that as success, right? Or if we set just these arbitrary goals, like I want to make a hundred thousand dollars. When you make a hundred thousand dollars a year or 50,000, whatever the number is, is there going to be a joy to that? Cause it's just what, what came from that or what good did you do with the money you made? Or did you give back? What lives have you touched? If it was just 
a number that you set, well, that's just goal oriented, not looking, you know, totally production oriented. And you've made the number a commodity. Whereas if there's a, if you said, hey, I want to make $100,000, but along the cross of uh, the, the, along the journey to making that money, my goal is to touch five lives in some impactful way, whatever that may be. Well, then maybe that that's where the success is. So it wasn't in the goal of accomplishing the number. It was in the lives that you've touched along the way in that, in that journey. See, but what I think is more important and instructive within Frankel about that is if we believe what he says is true, is that the people who say, uh, my goal is to make $100,000, most likely they're not going to make it. Because he says, right, aim at success. The more you aim at it, make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. So you're aiming at something which you think you're supposed to aim at, and your aiming is producing the opposite effect. You're not going to get to the monetary place because you're striving toward it. And he's saying if, you, if you're pursuing something that you love, if you're pursuing something that you meant to do, if you have been lucky enough to have found your work, you will make the money. The money is the byproduct from having, and I would say it's also creating meaning. It's from creating meaning, then the success will come. But the, in this context, with the way in which we talk to people, the way in which we instruct kids, there is no conversation like this. There is no conversation about the creation of meaning. So it's it's all about the money. And so I think that's that may, in fact, connect to those numbers that you presented before as to why people are deeply dissatisfied is because, and, and Frankel addresses it within the book, he says, the will to money has replaced the will to meaning. And it's never going to be satisfying. The pursuit of money for its own sake is the money. And, and I really do believe that it's, you're setting yourself up to fail. And now you're going to have nothing. It's like a zero sum. You're going to come up with nothing. You don't have meaningful work. You have no purpose and you have no money. So now where are you? So, and I, you know, I look at this a lot of times because I deal with 19 year olds every single day. And so people, you know, the old folks say, well, why can't they be more engaged? Why can't they have more meaning? Why can't they have more curiosity? Why do, you know, why are they so hopelessly lost? And my response is always, because we have made them like that. We've set up the whole system to lead precisely to where they are. And I think it's killing them. And I think we're killing them. That's why I keep trying to address this. And this was really the impetus for this whole program on Frankel. Because to have a, a meaningless life, is just not sustainable. I think you brought up something last time we spoke, which was, or maybe a couple of times ago, which was sometimes you need to have a job in order to do your life's work. Yes. So that you, let's say your job is, you get a job working at McDonald's so that you can supplement your income. So you have money, but that then allows you to, you want to be an author. That's your life's work. Well, there's no money in that initially. Maybe no money in that for a long time. So maybe you have to get a job in order to supplement what your life's work is going to be. Yeah, but the whole idea of, and we talked about this, what is the question of your work? And what is the question of your purpose? And so you were talking about how your purpose has evolved over time. And so that now your purpose is, I don't even know what language it would be. I would say 
an enabler, right? And a, a person who enables other people to have a livelihood and create lives. That's the word I would use to describe it. And you're doing it through business, right? But um, the, I think the whole thing that's not on the table is where do I reside? Where, when, and I, I, I don't even think we ask kids to think this way. Like, you know, when you go into a class, do you like it? Are you stimulated by it? Are you interested in it? Because all of that, I think, is giving you information that is really useful. And I think it's an energy. You go into a class and you hear a person speak, and sometimes it's the person, sometimes it's the subject, and sometimes it's both. It's the person and the subject. And you have to figure out, you know, what's the experience like for you. But I think the fact that you're drawn to something, that's, that's, that's sort of like the wisdom, you know, you're being led to someplace that probably is going to be good for you. But we're not telling kids to pay attention to that. We're not even telling kids to be on the lookout for it. We tell kids, suffer through this because you have to suffer through it because you got to get to that next place, which is the job. And I, I think we're setting them up for some real hard falls. Well, it's job training, which I think is a, a big problem for people now because they go to these very expensive universities and they come out without really necessarily any skill set per se, but they're being trained to go fulfill some kind of job without any purpose. So that leaves you relatively unhappy, but you also don't necessarily have a skill set when you leave college. Yeah, but, but are they trained to do a particular job? I see, see I, I think we're, we're not doing, I mean, I don't know, who am I, right? But I, I just, I think we have lost it in this country with regard to education. And education used to be following a path and it was a study of a, system of beliefs and it was the creation of the human being and that's what education that's what the liberal arts education was all about in its foundation and again whether or not liberal arts is even a sustainable thing for people to study in the future i don't know the writing on the wall doesn't look very promising about the liberal arts being able to even hold on to a place within higher education um, because everything is becoming so focused on job and and developing the skills and we're we're losing it. See, but the thing in the context of what I'm talking about is, see, I think if you give a person and you expose a person to receiving an education, the job skills will come. So what I would be curious to know from you is, is I took a class 20 years ago. From, let's say, whatever it was, let's say to 1999 to 2009, where have you seen your life's purpose shift and then how in teaching? I haven't, actually. I, um, I think, you know, I think, and it's always really hard to go back to, like, what did you think when you first went into this, right? I, I thought whatever my teachers were doing in college and whatever they were talking about, I wanted that. And I didn't even know what that was. I really didn't even know what that was. But I, I thought, I want to be part of that conversation. And I do remember even going to graduate school 
not even being able to name what it was that I was particularly interested in. I didn't have the vocabulary of my discipline yet because I was, I was young. I was an amateur. I was a novice. Like you said, in some ways it was easier to be a novice and an amateur. And amateur means lover, actually, right? Um, so, and that was me. I was a lover. I, I was drawn to this subject. But so I, I went to Penn State to graduate school and Penn State at that time was very focused on argumentation and debate. And that's what I started to study at Penn State. And then I said, that's not what I'm interested in. That's not remotely what I wanted to learn. But my teachers at school, I had some amazing teachers all throughout my life and I've been really lucky, never told me, you know, what you really are interested is called this. They let me come to it on my own. And so it took me, I would say, until the end of my PhD program before I really understood what I was attracted to when I was 19 years old. And no one ever told it to me. They let me figure it out for myself. And it took me a long time. It took me until I was in my mid-30s where I had the language and I could speak in a way that was halfway intelligent about what I was interested in when I was 19 years old. But that's a long time, right? A long duration. And it was a lot of work on my part. And I, I think that gets into people just wanting immediate gratification. And they don't realize, like, now I look back, it's taken 20 years to get to the point of where I am today. You know, as a 20-year-old kid, you never have that foresight. And right. hindsight's always twenty twenty. But really, that journey is a really, really, really long time. It's not something that happens over the course of a couple of months. Um, and, and I see it today as we start to hire different people. 21-year-olds today are looking for immediate gratification. Um, they don't necessarily see that, you know, maybe not every job you're going to have is going to be the greatest job, but there is something to be said about sticking it out at certain jobs for longer than a few months because there's some growth that happens there, not just growth about yourself. Um, I think now there's a generational issue of, Everything that happens is happening to me. And why are they doing this to me? Why are they, you know, they're not providing me this utopian workplace or it's the employer's fault. Whereas, you know, they're not looking at it and coming into the workplace and saying, some of this is my baggage or my issues. Um, there's not that reflection there. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out, I think, over, over the next 20 years for them. But at least for me, I know that you know, looking back now, that's where that over that time and, and self-discovery is where all the growth, the growth is. See, and I think we have to, we have to cut kids some slack. One is that, remember, we've created that mentality that they come in mm -hmm. with. That's we as the adults. We are responsible for creating that. And, and there's a parallel between my students and the, your people coming into the workplace. And so that for my students, I just ask them, okay, your mentality is looking at like for me, it's school in a particular way. The only thing I ask that you do for the next 15 weeks, and maybe the same happens within the workplace, is that you suspend that ideology as to how you see school and you try on mine for maybe 15 weeks. And that 15 weeks, I'm trying to have you see school in a different way. So with one of my classes this semester, because I always start off the semester, I can't imagine teaching not doing that is what's the purpose of school. It's the first thing that they, I ask them to engage with. 
what is the purpose of school? And I don't want to come in with the answer. I want them to grapple with the question, and I want them to see where their mind goes, and then I want them to hear what they have to say. But what was revealed to me this semester was that, one is, we know that they see school as a complete, total waste, as some stopping point on the way to the job. But they came in this semester also with this mentality that school is a place where you are trained to work for somebody else, but it's not for the entrepreneur who's going to create a business of his own. That's not what you get at school. So they came in with this whole mentality of to see school, which I, I think is very detrimental and very harmful to them, um, but they don't know that. And so I listened to them and all I asked them is to do is, okay, just try to table that ideology that you have and just try to join me for the next 15 weeks. And then let's see where it turns out at the end of 15 weeks. If you come in and you have, you're open, I mean, you know, people use this language a lot, but open mind, you come in with an open mind and not a fixed idea as to what's the workplace or what's school, I think organically you'll change. Well, it's interesting you say that people, yes, I agree. College is not a, a, the training ground to become an entrepreneur in a lot of ways. Um, but I, with the counter argument, I think, is in those formative years of 18 to 22, it, it does give you the framework of how to, how to do a lot of things that now looking back as an entrepreneur, in the moment, I didn't realize how beneficial they would be to me 20 years later. Um, and I'm only able to reflect back on that. So in the moment, I would have said this will this is absolutely will provide zero to me as a business owner. Whereas 20 years later, I look at it and say it's provided everything to me as Correct. a business owner. Correct. But I didn't have as a kid, you know, I didn't have that. Now, that's the speech that you need to develop and go and bring to schools. Not, I'm not kidding. You really do. Because this and I'm really not kidding. You really should do that is that um, one Business school is in the business primarily, in my opinion, is to provide you with an education. And school is in the business of inviting you to learn how to learn. And that's what I say to them. If you learn how to learn and you get to the place where you can learn on your own, you're pretty much set for your life. And therefore, no matter what happens in terms of this fast-paced life in which we live where things are so rapidly changing you'll always be able to figure it out because you know how to learn. Yeah, and I think that we've really had this uh, cultural shift in the past 10 years of the glorification of being an entrepreneur. So if you look on uh -huh. you know, people's Instagram tags, it'll say entrepreneur. Uh -huh. um, and what does that word really mean? Uh -huh. right? it, you know, and I think it's the cool thing to be right now is I want to be an entrepreneur. When in all reality, I think if you look at everyone who says that, just because of the way of the laws of business and capitalism and all that goes into it, 90% of those people will fail at whatever they're trying to do. And 10% of them will be amazing at it. Well, see, the other thing is, and this is such a, a fundamental thing, is you're going to be an entrepreneur doing what? Mm -hmm. Right? It's not an empty category. I'm going to create a business. No, you have to have an idea yeah. for a business. And then you have to have some capacity to birth that idea in the world and you have to find a market for that idea. And, they had, and that's the biggest thing is having an idea is one thing. You need the marketplace for that idea. And, you know, I've had friends who've started businesses 
and they started the business without realizing there was no need in their market, oh. in the market for it. And, you know, next, oh. you know, two years, they isn't that, isn't that business 101? And that's business 101, you know, is that they, they came up with a product. Product is genius, but the marketplace was like, we have no need for that. And the market showed it because the business failed. And then 15 years later, there's still not that same product in the marketplace. Whereas if there was a need for it, we would see it. See, and the other thing I wanted to talk about with what you said is I think it's really, really destructive for students to speak like this, and they do all the time, which is, what do I need this for? And I keep saying, again, the more you aim at something and make it a target, the more you miss it. You don't know why you need this, okay? So just take this. And that's what you, that's the message that you have to deliver to people because now you have experienced that is you didn't see the wisdom in what you were presented with when you were 19 years old. Now, almost at 40, you understand the wisdom behind what you were presented with, right? And it took that, yeah. And I think it's just, it takes living life yeah. to have the ability to reflect yeah. back on those things and say, okay, now I see the value in what I was being taught. So the thing is, when you're 19 years old, you don't know what's in your best interest. But, and I say this all the time, there is a wisdom in the curriculum. You have to take certain things because there's a whole philosophical orientation behind it of which you know nothing, take the class, engage with the class, learn from the class, and then see where it goes. But see, this is this is the whole idea of use, which I think use, that language, I hate that. What am I ever going to do with that? It makes everything just become sand in your hands. It's not about using something. It's about having something within you. Forget about its use, because you'll discover You'll discover the use when you're not looking for the use. Like, for instance, like, say, biology. What do I have to take biology for? That's what the students say. Well, because we're biological creatures, right? And so that if you don't know biology, you're really at a loss for understanding yourself. And I don't know about you, but um, I find a lot of people really woefully ignorant about biology, and it's, it's ironic from what, what you're saying is I got to spend about two hours a couple of months ago at a Fortune 500 company. And it, it, this is an offshoot to that company. I'm going to be vague because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But so I'm in the office and, uh, and, and everyone's doing nothing because there's nothing to do, right? So everyone's just sitting there and everyone's complaining how bored they are and all these things. And this is where we talk about opportunity, education, all those things that we just mentioned. So one of the women there is on her phone. She's like, basically, I come here and for the eight hours, I just Instagram, this job sucks. It's the worst thing ever. Wow. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great attitude to have. Um, now, yes, I do agree with you. The job does suck. They, there's nothing to do, so you don't feel productive. So obviously, you're going to have a bad attitude. But I said to her, I'm like, man, I, if I were you, I'd try to parlay this into something way bigger. And she's like, looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, you're working at a Fortune 500 company. It's fair to say you're interacting with some of upper level management at some point. Put on your best face. Maybe there's a job position for you in this company down the road doing something that you love. And this is just the, you know, the path you have to take. You have to suck it up for the next six months. But that opportunity will come out. Or maybe you do a great job, even though the situations are really shitty right now. And somebody notices that. And that that leads to the next job you have. So this is just a stepping stone to something bigger. And that's not the attitude of the company culture right now that they have. You have 20 people who are just really upset and really not engaging in any of it, not seeing that there's so much potential from the opportunity of the people you're being able to meet because of the job you have right now. And that job would, if you actually put something into it, lead to something else. Now, one of the people in there has taken the past eight months while they've been there to meet every upper level senior vice president and higher on a first name basis. 
it's fair to say that no matter what else happens, the other 18 people might not have a job, but the one person who's engaged everybody on a deeper level and has seen the opportunity in the fact that it's so quiet, she has a lot of free time. She's reframed it. She goes, it's so dead. I now have a lot of time to interact with all these other people. Yeah. And now I need to be there for a year. I'm four months away. In four months, I can now approach upper level management and she's created yeah. a position for herself within the organization. Yeah. She actually literally is writing a job description for a job she's going to make in the company. I'm like, that's so what? There's 18 people. She's one out of 18. One out of 18. She's the only one who's use, using the past eight months yeah. to actually now further her future. The other t- uh, 17 just complain about it. Yeah, but see, in in the context of of Frankel and in the context of some of the things that we're talking about, the other people have chosen to let the environment define them. So there's nothing going on, so they have nothing going on. So they have, they're in the camp. It's the concentration camp, right? So they have become their environment. You're lost. And the the thing is, without the consciousness, without the awareness, you're always going to be lost. You're never going to get anywhere in your life. And the the problem is not because of the workplace. The problem is you. And I think that applies to students. Oh, absolutely. In a 20-person class, it applies to people in any business culture. You know, you're you're presented with with situations. What you make of the situation is either going to be an opportunity to better yourself or an opportunity to make yourself more of a failure. And in my opinion, you have have two routes. Right. Or or I would say also that you have the choices of either like this one person, one out of 18. You have the choice. Remember, I used this language before, which is ancient language of epideictic from the ancient Greeks. You have the language to celebrate or you have the language to disparage. And that choice will fundamentally create you as a person, right? So that, like, for instance, my situation, I teach an hour away from where I live. People, when they hear that, an hour away, you commute two hours each day. I always say, for me, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't get other time in the day where I am completely by myself and I can think, I can listen to music, I can listen to the radio, I can do whatever I want. It's my freedom time. I never look upon my commute as a drag. I never complain about traffic. I don't because I don't see it as, oh, look at me, poor me, I have to do it. That's not my perspective at all. And that's the whole idea of Choose how you're going to see something because that, remember that Franco quote? And this comes from the existentialist. This comes from the Stoics. The choice of my attitude is my fundamental freedom and that everything flows from that. Now, these people in that workplace, I'm sure that they construct it, that they are going nowhere because of the company, but they're going nowhere because of themselves. It's so obvious, right? A thousand percent. I think that's the perfect place to wrap it up. That's some profound words. We we just fixed that <laughs> we fixed deal we fixed right away. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this with me. And uh, I mean, that wraps yeah. up uh, the, the three parts. So, yeah, it was awesome. I appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Doing this has been an absolute journey and an amazing time. I have learned so much and I want to thank you all for listening in. If you kindly would, we would just ask you for your support. Uh, If you've liked the show, if you've gained anything from it, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or any of the other platforms where you are viewing this. We would greatly appreciate it, and it means the world. Thank you so much for listening in. You can find us online at 
anthonyvasquezworkshops.com, as well as on social, on Instagram, Facebook, and on YouTube at Anthony Vasquez Workshops. We look forward to seeing you there.